0: Our sermon text this morning is found in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We'll be reading the, uh, verses 1 to 21. You can find this in the Pew Bible on page 213. Uh, we began this series last week. We're going to be looking at the books of First and Second Samuel through this school year. And the main theme of this history book, these history books, is about how God built His kingdom among His people in the Old Testament... But it teaches us also how God builds his kingdom today. Uh, Now, we're not going to skip over the stuff that I'm not reading in chapter 2. During the sermon, you'll need your Bible handy. I'll be referring back to chapter 2 numerous times uh, to talk about uh, Eli and the background of this story, which is Samuel's calling as a prophet. So let's hear now God's word. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli... and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel! And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything. And hid nothing from him. And he said, "It is the Lord. let him do what seems good to him." And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. If you had to think about the state of Christianity and the state of the Christian church in America in 1740 what would you guess or what would you think it was like? That's been a long time now. This is pre-United States. This was back when it was just colonies, 13 colonies. What was Christianity like in 1740? I think most of us, when we hear that, would think, well, it must have been wonderful. Uh, After all, we tend to have very golden, you know, spectacles when it comes to looking at the past, especially certain periods of the past. Uh, everybody must have been good people, going to church, loving the Lord their God, obeying everything, right? Wrong. In 1740, a pastor named Samuel Blair, who was a Presbyterian minister planning churches in the middle colonies, said this or wrote this about the church in his day. He says religion lay, as it were, a dying and ready to expire its last breath on this part of the church. Can you believe that? And actually, statistics bear him out. In the 1730s and 40s, church attendance had reached a a pretty major low in America. In fact, it's exactly the same just about as it is today. In 1740, about three or four out of every 10 regularly attending church. It looks like it's about to die. Now, does anybody know what happens next? In 1741, '42, 43, a man by the name of George Whitfield arrives in the colonies begins to preach. Two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, join him from time to time. Jonathan Edwards begins to preach sermons that have now become famous in New England. And even Samuel Blair, who wrote that, began to start new churches and new churches and new churches. And guess what happened? What we call the Great Awakening, when people who thought they were Christians but weren't became aware of the fact and began to seek God's mercy, when sleepy Christians woke up And started to take their faith seriously again. And when even very skeptical people were converted from skepticism to faith. It's called revival. It's called an awakening. And don't you think we need that today? Couldn't we look at the church? I'm not saying this one in particular. But just the church in general. And couldn't we say it lays, as it were, a dying. And needs the reviving hand of God. Well, enter Samuel. God is building his kingdom among his people, but notice the people of Israel were also a dying. They had no good leadership. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And they had been led astray. Religion was gasping its last breath. And God raises up a boy to preach his word. And the rest is history. Israel becomes revived and eventually you get to the point where they have a king after God's own heart. If you look at your bulletin, I want to talk to you about revival this morning, really briefly before we come to the communion table. First of all, let's see when we need revival. When is the time right for revival? Secondly, who can bring it? And lastly, how does he bring it? First of all, when do we need genuine revival Well, it's when the church, as we just said, declines to such a degree, when even those who say they're Christians have declined to such a degree that you can hardly notice the spiritual life in them, if it even is in them. Isn't it hard always to watch decline happen, no matter what you're talking about? Decline is sad to watch. Have you ever been back to an old house you used to live in that now is kind of ruined or condemned? And just driving by it makes you sad. Or I've, I've ridden by an old school of mine right here in town, that I, one of my favorite schools to go to, which is now no longer a school, Kingsford Elementary. And to drive by it, it's just kind of sad. You know, all that life that used to be there, all that activity, no more activity, no more kids, no more voices, no more teachers. Wow. Israel had reached that place spiritually, and uh, the writer here describes that in verses 1 through 3 very picturesquely. He says, Samuel, the boy, was ministering to the Lord, but it seems like Samuel, the boy, was the only one ministering to the Lord. Because here you have the high priest who was present, it says. Eli was present when Samuel worshipped, but that's about all Eli was is present. He was there. He was a warm body, but it tells us that he was getting old, his eyesight was growing dim, and in verse 2, he was lying down on the job, literally, he was lying down in his place. He gave to the boy Samuel work to do, and he just took it easy. As a result of this, the word of the Lord had become rare, It tells us in verse 1, people didn't know what God wanted, they didn't know what God had said, and no one was there to tell them. No visions had come from the Lord because God had gotten frustrated with the people. In fact, it seems like Eli's uh, failed eyesight was a symbol of the whole nation. They had failed to spiritually see. And it seems like the lamp that was going down in the temple as Samuel watched over it was another symbol of the whole nation. God's lamp was going out. Now, how did they get to this state? And this is where I need to pull you into chapter 2 a little bit. If you have your Bible, you might want to have it handy so you can look back with me. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 12, that it all started with the sons of Eli who were worthless men. Worthless men. This meant they were evil to the core. They didn't have any spiritual health within them. And yet, here they were, learning how to be priests. Supposedly leading the people in worship and faith and morals. And yet they had none of those things for themselves. They didn't have faith, it tells us in verse 12. They did not know the Lord. I think you could also say and translate that, they did not care for God. They did not love the Lord. Can you imagine it? And oh yes, we can imagine it because we see it, don't we, even in our day, church leaders who don't really love the Lord Who don't really know him, who don't really care about his interests in this world and his interest in the lives of those people that have been so generously entrusted to their care, that was these boys. They did not care for God and they did not care for God's people. They wrecked the worship of the temple because it says here that as people brought their sacrifices to offer God they would steal more of the meat for themselves than they were supposed to. Uh, It it was told us in Leviticus 7 that, and and you'll be interested to hear this, I think, uh, in in Leviticus 7 it says that when anyone brought any animal to God, a bull, a goat, a a chicken, or a a pigeon, when, when they brought it to be sacrificed, certain parts belong to the priest, the rest of it belongs to God and the people who brought it. The parts that belonged to the priest were the breast meat and the shank meat. So you get the brisket, and you get the legs, O oh, priest. That's God's gift to you for serving in his temple. But these boys had no scruples. They, they designed the special fork that was grabby, and they would stick the fork down into the pot deep so they could pull out, and they said, whatever we bring out with this fork is ours brisket, right, legs, and more. In fact, it says before it even got into the pot, they started looking at the animal and picking out the choice cuts. They didn't want the brisket. They wanted the tenderloin, the porterhouse, the finer cuts, and they would take it even though the people who came protested and they said, don't do this. Let me offer it to God. I'm here to worship. They would say, well, I'll take it by force. Don't you see? An abusive situation where they're abusing God's worship and abusing God's people, and to top it all off, they're immoral to boot. It tells us there in verse 22, Eli, though he was old, kept hearing reports that his sons were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And that's laying in the biblical sense, adults. Immorality. That was going on in the house of God. They would steal the meat. They didn't care about God. They would sleep with the women who were there to help the worship go along. And they seemed to have no qualms about it. Eli gives this you know, pitiful confrontation. He says, boys, now boys, you shouldn't be doing this. You should know better. But it tells us in chapter 2 that when the boys heard it, they didn't stop. Verse 25 in chapter 2, they didn't listen to the voice of their father. And then it tells us in chapter 3 that Eli failed to restrain them. You see, Eli was their dad. He was not responsible for what they did. right? Parents, we're not responsible especially for what our adult children do. And how they behave we can't control that but Eli was also the high priest he was responsible that he allowed them to continue to be priests even as they abused God and people they didn't listen to his rebuke which they should have but they didn't and so he should have put them out of God's house But he didn't. And so here we are. We're in a situation where the nation of God, the one nation on earth that was supposed to know the Lord, didn't know the Lord, and there was nobody to teach them. Revival is needed. I think we'll all agree. Now, what do you do when you're in a situation like that? What if you are living in a time when everyone around you cares nothing for God? What are you supposed to do? Run away? Hide? Blame it on everybody else? Join the crowd? No, notice. What is Samuel doing in verse 1? It's a good model. A boy is here to teach us what to do. What does it say he did? He ministered to the Lord. You see, y'all, it doesn't matter if anyone else is ministering to the Lord. God calls you to minister to the Lord. It doesn't matter if anyone else wants revival or is praying for it. You ought to pray for revival. It doesn't matter if anybody is seeking to be faithful to God or not. You are called to be faithful. Sometimes things get so bad that it's down to one or two people, it seems. And yet the Lord is so determined that he'll use that one or two people, even if he happens to be a boy, to bring his resurrection power to the whole group. And so here, can you imagine it? The boy Samuel doing what he was supposed to do, seemingly the only one doing it, praying that God would intervene. And God did. I can't impress this on y'all enough. We need to be praying for revival all the time. When we see the world in a mess, when we see the same things we see here, uh, faith has gone down the tubes, worship has gone down the tubes and become a thing for our own pleasure. Uh, Morals have gone down the tubes. Church discipline is almost non-existent. We ought not to do like everyone else around us. We ought not to give up and throw in the towel. Instead, we ought to draw near to God and seek his face. God, see us in our desperate condition and raise us up. Revive us, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Now, that leads us to our second thing. Not only when do we need it, but we see here, Who brings it? And it's clear, right? Samuel is ministering to the Lord. And it's the Lord, in verse 4, who responds by calling Samuel personally. God is personally giving to Samuel a commission as a prophet to represent him so that revival could come to God's people. Now let me take you real quick again into chapter 2 because I want to point something out that I think will encourage your heart. Because all throughout chapter 2, there's all this bad news about Eli, there's bad news about the sons, but intermixed with that bad news, there are several points of good news about little Samuel and what God is up to, what he's doing with this young boy. In chapter 2, verse 11, it tells us that the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Then it goes on to tell us how bad Eli's sons were. Only then to, in in verse 18, say, Samuel, though, was still ministering. He kept going. This boy who was clothed with a linen ephod, that was the uniform of the priest. In fact, there's a touching detail given in verse 19 that his mother, year by year, would bring a new robe that she uh, sewed for her son when the family went to worship. She would give it to him to wear for the next year. There he was in his robe, standing in for the derelict leaders. And then it tells us more about how Eli can't rebuke his children. And then there's verse 26, Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then there's more about how God will judge uh, Eli's house. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Samuel was still ministering. Do you notice it? All the lights might go out, but our God is determined to preserve a light for himself. Therefore, revival is possible. If God does not preserve us, revival is not possible. If God is not a determined God, then it's not possible. If God is not a compassionate God, it's not possible. But because He is determined, because He is consistent, faithful, and compassionate, revival can happen. God sometimes is working among one person, two people, a very small band of people, a tiny remnant, and yet through that remnant He promises to keep the lamp lit to not let it go out, and to eventually use that lamp to light the other lamps throughout the land if his people will pray and seek his face for him to do it. And so in the night, as Samuel is watching over the temple, and Eli is lying down in his place, God calls him four times, Samuel, Samuel. Now what does he think at first? What does Samuel think as he hears this voice? Eli, what you want? Yes, sir. He's dutiful. He's wanting to hear from his mentor. He's the apprentice. He thinks it's him. In fact, it tells us in verse 7, Samuel didn't know yet how to hear the voice of God. He's just a boy. He loved the Lord unlike Eli's sons, but he did not have the maturity to know when God was speaking versus when he wasn't. And so he goes again and again back to to Eli. Eli sends him back again and again. God, being so patient, Right? He, he calls him over and over and over until finally Samuel gives the signal. Speak, Lord, because I'm ready finally to hear from you for the first time in my life. Speak to me so that I can know what you say, God, so I can know your word. And then what happens? God gives him a happy message, right? Samuel, I'm going to give you John 3.16. God so loved the world. Samuel, here is an encouraging devotional thought for the day. To keep you encouraged. Is that what happens? Isn't it interesting what God does to this little boy? He gives him a message that God says, anybody who hears this, Samuel, is going to quake. Their ears are going to shake and tingle because this is bad news. And by the way, It's about your boss. What a test. Right? What kind of God does this? This is what we need to do this morning. We need to behold our God a little bit and think about who he is, what he's like. What kind of God operates in this way? What do you think? We've already said he's consistent. We've already said he's determined. He will not let the light go out. We already said that he works among the weak and the lowly. We saw that even last week with Hannah. But here we see something else. We see a God of absolute determination. One who, when he decides to judge, he will judge. And when he decides to save, he will save. And there is no turning him back. In this God's hands are the issues of life and death. He says to Eli and his family, a harrowing thing. Not only are you not going to ever be a priest ever again, and neither will your sons. I will kill you all, and you will never live again. But I also will not atone for any of your sins forever. You will die in your sins. Here's a God who has the power in his hand to put us to death for our sins while at the same time having power in his hands to bring us to life by his grace as he does with Samuel. As he will do with so many more in the nation of Israel. Samuel is getting a first impression of God and it is a doozy. Remember kids when you were in school and you or, or adults when you were in school? Do you remember those first days of school? Maybe you had a teacher who was laying down the law the first week. Remember those teachers? No nonsense, picking people out to make examples of them. Uh, why were they doing that? Setting the, tone. Setting the tone, right? This is how who I am. Don't try me. <laughs> Don't cross me. This is my classroom. And there's a way in which... God is doing that with Samuel. Although in a compassionate way and in a kind way and in a way that has no spite in it, but a way that is good for all of us to hear. You are dealing Samuel not just with some regional impotent God that you do rain dances for and maybe he'll wake up and send rain. You are dealing with the God who gives people life and you're dealing with a God who gives people death. You're dealing with a God who sends people to heaven And a God who sends them to hell. This is serious. The people in my kingdom who are not taking me seriously are about to get moved out of the way. And Samuel, I'm choosing you to take me seriously. Will you do it? What a God. This God makes revival possible. He's able to make good and lasting first impressions. And he's determined to save his people in spite of all the odds. And so, y'all, when we look around us, when we look inside of us and see problems and see death and all kinds of things working and things not working the way we think they ought to work, we ought to remember who God is. Fear the Lord more than anything else. No, This is what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't be afraid of people who can kill your body. Remember this? Fear God, who can both kill the body and the soul in hell. And that's exactly what Samuel is being told here. Samuel, I'm about to condemn Eli and his kids to judgment so that I can bring salvation and life to many more of my people, including you. Do you think Samuel took God seriously? After this, do you think he went out into his life with a different perspective? Oh, yes, he did. And we're going to see it over the next several chapters. Samuel is a good character. He's someone who fears the Lord and turns from evil. And don't we want to be those kind of people? Revival hinges on it. Because only this kind of God can revive dead things. Amen? How awesome is God in your eyes this morning? How awesome is He in your eyes? Or is there something else that to you seems more awesome, more fetching, more exciting than the Lord God of heaven and earth? Now lastly, let's look at how this God brings revival. And you'll see in verses 15 to 21, the way that Samuel is called to respond to the message. Because God doesn't just say, Samuel, here's some bad news. I want to tell you about my judgment. He also gives Samuel the job of sharing that bad news with none other than his boss, Eli. Now, do you think you would be scared to share this? Uh, What if on your first day at work, Somebody gave you the assignment. Hey, go to the CEO and I want you to deliver this message. You're fired. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'll be like, "I'm not cut out for this." Yeah, I am I'm overqualified. <laughs> and that's exactly what God is doing with Samuel. Just this boy, he says, "Okay, first time on the first day on the job, Samuel as a prophet. He's been a priest. But now he's a prophet for the first time. Samuel, first day, go to the head man and tell him God is firing him from his calling and from his life. Wow. It tells us Samuel didn't really want to bear this message. I think that's a very good and important detail, by the way. Sometimes people don't take seriously the message of the Bible about hell and death. And I fear that it's because too many church leaders have said it almost with glee. Almost like they're excited to talk about hell. But notice Samuel. He didn't really want to bear the message of hell to Eli, does he? In fact, he has to kind of be dragged into it by the Lord, which is typically how it is. And yet, faithful as he is, he does it. Sam, Eli even kind of holds him to it. Eli, Tell me, Samuel, what God told you. Don't hold anything back. And it tells us in verse eighteen, he told him everything. Do you see that? Everything, and he hid nothing. And, and, and Eli received it with this kind of, this similar kind of laxadaisical attitude that he's had all along. Oh well, c'est la vie. If that's what God's decided, let him do what he wants to do. And yet Samuel had been faithful. He was a true prophet. This is important. This is what I want to leave you with today. He was a true prophet. A prophet is someone who receives God's word and then delivers that word exactly as he has received it. Nothing added, nothing taken away. Straight up. No mixer. Neat. And I want to tell you, that is exactly how a revival happens. Don't you know that's what we need today? People who will be raised up in God's church and in God's world to tell people God's word straight up, neat. Yes, with, oh, with so much sadness at the message of hell, with a broken heart over sin, but yet with a boldness that I'm not going to change the message because I'm being sent by a higher person. I'm not here just to give you a little TED talk, right? I'm here to give you a God talk directly from him. This ain't no, you know, self-help motivational speaker here. This is the Lord your God addressing you. And that's how revival begins. It tells us that Samuel continued to grow and God would not let his words fall to the ground, verse 19. And then it says, eventually, as he grew from Dan to Beersheba, from the north all the way down to the south, Samuel, everybody knew Samuel was a prophet. He had been established by God. God spoke to Samuel. He continued to appear and reveal himself by the word. And then it says, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. There's your pattern for revival. When morals fail, when spiritual life and beliefs fail, when worship becomes all about us and not about God, when discipline in the church fails, God will send someone. He'll find somebody who will stand up and give it to God's people straight. And that will begin a process of revival that will spread far and wide. In the book of Acts, a very similar phrase is used over and over again. I think they actually got it from Samuel. When Luke wrote about the early church, I think he was thinking about this time. When he said the apostles went out, and as the word grew, the church grew. As the word increased, the people increased. God revives us by the word. You cannot plant a garden without seed, Neither can you plant a church or grow a church or keep a church alive or bring a church back to life without the seed of God's Word. Straight up, nothing taken away, nothing added, without fear or favor delivering God's message. The Holy Spirit will add His power. And he will do for the church again what he did for Samuel. He will let none of our words fall to the ground, but they will meet with hearts that are ready to receive them. Wow. Now think about that. This is just a little example of what revival might look like. In 1740, when Samuel Blair saw the American church and says it's basically dead, What happened over the next decade, the Great Awakening, was a movement of preaching. It was people preaching God's Word with conviction. And people were changed by that. During the Reformation, did you know, it was also a revival movement. In the city of Geneva, they had, at one time, six sermons a week for people to go to. Did you hear me? (laughs) Six sermons a week. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be our model. Or that it should be the model for every place at every time. But I want to point out, people actually went to them and they wanted to go. Which, that's what I'm trying to make the point. Oh, for a desire for the Word of God like that. People would get up at 5 a.m. to go hear a sermon before they had to go out to the field because they just wanted more of what God said. Revival? What priority do we put on God's Word? whatever priority it is or lack of it, shows kind of how near we are or far we are from God's reviving work. Wow. What is revival? If it's not the restoration of a living heart into a dead church or into a dead people, this passage is reminding us that That living, beating heart is the very words that come from the mouth of God, restored to the hearts of God's people. Samuel went out. Samuel began to preach. He began to proclaim. The one who would not hold anything back to Eli, he passed the first test, kept doing it and doing it and doing it all till his dying day. And God built a kingdom by it. Don't you want him to do that again today? To build a kingdom among us? Wouldn't you like to see uh, America restored to its faith? Right? Other nations of the world restored to their faith? Amen. It takes God's spirit and it takes a careful commitment to God's word.